Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and the forthcoming Simple Homebrewing. Uh, AHA member presale runs from 5-1 to 5-8. So just after you hear this episode, you're going to be able to get yourself uh, 30% off and free shipping. You can go to www.experimentalbrew.com slash simple for more details. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, of course, we'll be tackling your feedback, the beer news, the stuff that we've discovered that we've been reading about beer, uh, some lab science that Denny got involved in, and some preliminary results that we've seen on the internet. And then we'll be stopping in the lounge and we'll be talking with Gary Glass and Matt Bowling of the American Homebrews Association to talk about the forthcoming Homebrew Con in Providence, Rhode Island, June 27th through June 29th. Find out exactly what it is you can expect and why you should go to the biggest damn homebrew party in the world. Yeah, it's going to be a busy day. But before we do all that, let's listen to a message from our sponsors. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, who invites you to attend HomebrewCon this June 27th to June 29th in Providence, Rhode Island. HomebrewCon brings 3,000 homebrewers together for three days of brewing, seminars, nighttime events, and camaraderie. HomebrewCon is also the leading showcase of brewing supplies and equipment. Visit homebrewcon.org to learn more. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Well, hey, welcome back, and thank you for taking a moment to listen to those fine messages from the fine people who help bring you this fine show. If you talk to those fine people about those fine products that they produce, make sure that you mention the fine people that you heard about those fine people from. In other words, tell them about experimental homebrewing so they know they're spending their money right. That's a lot of fining. Well, if we want clear beer around here. So now, of course, we have to start with some announcements, and our first announcement was, if you missed it, well, last week we had a brand new episode of The Brew Files, episode 60, A Daily Pint of Fruit, in which I sit down and, well, we both talk about how exactly you get fruit into beer and make fruit beers that you actually want to drink and not things that are going to make you hate yourself. And if you're going to HomebrewCon, we want to remind you that once again, we're partnering with our friends from Brewcraft USA Country Malt Group to throw a party on June 26th in the evening. That's the Wednesday before HomebrewCon officially starts. 
We'll have more details coming, but there'll be buses running back and forth to make it easy for you to get there. There'll be giveaways. There'll be beer. There'll be lots of fun stuff going on. So we hope you can make it to that party. We'll be doing something goofy. And if you're in the Providence area, make sure you show up. (laughs) Yeah. And then on the opposite side of the country, on the opposite side of summer, we'll be attending Hoppin' Brew School in Yakima, Washington. August 30th through Monday, September 2nd, there's going to be speakers, there's going to be parties, there's going to be fun and shenanigans galore, and the opportunity to actually learn a lot about the the world of hops, You know that thing that all of us American brewers really, really love. Get better access and better knowledge about one of your favorite ingredients by getting better access and closer access than you ever thought was possible. Yeah, I can't tell you how much I have learned about hops by going here over the years. You uh, you talk to the people who grow them, you talk to the people who package them and make different products, the pellets, the hop oils, all that kind of stuff. It is really, really an educational experience that is tons of fun all at the same time. Yeah, so that you'll be able to get details at YCH Hops. Again, that's going to be August 30th through Monday, September 2nd in Yakima, Washington, brought to you by our friends at Yakima Chief Hops. That's right. Stay tuned for more information. And uh, next announcement is kind of a bummer, but uh, Seth Klon from MechaGrade informs us that the Brewing Man celebration has been postponed until next year. They just uh, have too much work to do on the farm. They got a lot of late snow and rain and uh, weren't able to get out into the fields early enough to do things. And also the origin brewing competition that uh, goes with Brewing Man, he didn't feel like he was giving people enough time to make the beers for that. So take Brewing Man off your schedule for Memorial Day weekend, and we'll let you know when you can put it back on. Yeah, you got a choice. Party or malt? And malt (laughs) is always a party. That's right, man. You party better if they make more malt. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHABrewSwag.com code word experimental, Amazon Brewers Friends or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It is Wings of Rescue, a great all-volunteer 501c3 organization that takes animals from shelters where they'd likely be euthanized and flies them to no-kill shelters. Uh, I, you know, I just, I get chills when I think of that, uh, that kind of thing. I, I love it. Uh, we're both animal fans. We hope you are too. So, uh, throw a few bucks in by going to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, toss a couple bucks to us, and we'll pass it along to them. There you go. And of course, it's not an episode of the show without us getting into your feedback. feedback. And so much feedback on the fruit beer episode of the Brew Files. So, A few notes to begin with. Uh, Fruit beer is still very much a beer-flavored beer when done right. Yeah, right. You know, and I've had people uh, commenting on that episode saying, geez, Denny, you were very calm about fruit and beer. Yeah, I I don't mind fruit and beer. Uh, The guys at Ailsong, who were on the last episode, use fruit and beer a lot, and they do it right. So as long as the fruit supports the beer and doesn't define it, I got no problem. Yeah, and of course, this is also where we put in the editorial note that uh, Denny has very little control over what I end up writing for the brew files, so blame me, not him. Yeah, please blame him. <laughs> but overall, the feedback on the episode was very, very positive with people adding their thoughts and their favorite beers that they've done with fruit. And the one that I should have remembered to put in the episode, and we didn't, was we had a lot of people with feedback about using watermelon in beer. And not surprisingly, most of the feedback seemed to focus around people doing their 
21st Amendment hell or high watermelon wheat uh, inspired beers. And, you know, many of the respondents used just straight watermelon juice. Uh, but when you do this, be very careful just to get the fruit in there, avoid the pith and the, the rind and everything else. Cause watermelon rind has a very strong green pepper flavor when it gets into a liquid. Uh, but I thought one of the interesting ones, and I totally forgot to record who sent me this feedback and I'm sorry about that. But one listener said that what they actually did in order to make one of the best watermelon beers they ever did was they took fresh watermelon juice and boiled it down very gently in order to kind of concentrate and remove some more of the water. Because again, our primary objection to using juice in a lot of things is juice is a lot of water and not necessarily a lot of flavor. So, and yeah, also avoid watermelon extracts because they all end up tasting like Jolly Ranchers. All? Have you tried every single one? No, I haven't tried every single one, but the ones I've tried all end up tasting there like Jolly go. Ranchers. There you go. The ones you've tried taste like that. So uh, if you find a good one, let us know, but uh, be very, very careful with them. Yep. And then from podcast recidivist Eric Pierce, uh, Eric writes in and says, Hey, I really enjoyed the Brew Files podcast this week. However, it was disappointing that you guys are straight outright dismissing Concord Grapes, Vitas Labrusca, as an option for fruit beers. In the interest of brewing local, I've been spying the plethora of wild Concord grapes that grow all around the woods where I live for making some of the home-brewed beverages, and Eric lives in Massachusetts. Uh, the inside of these fruits are sweet and tasty, but they do have a seed to contend with. The skins are super tart. What's not to like about that? Given the tart factor that I think can be achieved, wouldn't these be good for Berliner Weiss, a Goza, or maybe some other sour beer, or, dare I say, Saison for that matter? Maybe cider or mead are better choices. I've heard of Concord grapes being dissed before. Is it just because of what comes to mind is Welch's or Manischewitz? Or is there something about the foxy character I've read about regarding wines made with Concord grapes? Anything else behind the advice against using these grapes? I've been making plans to use these wild grapes this fall, so I'm all ears. So the foxy character is reference to the fact that Concord grapes are also called fox grapes. Uh, but one of the biggest reasons not to use Concord grapes, other than yes, you're right, it's a lot of Welch's and Manischewitz prejudice. Uh, is Vitas Labrusca, uh, the average bricks on those is about 14 bricks. So um, I think bricks and Play-Doh are kind of roughly equivalent. You can kind of fudge across that. So, And then you follow your rule of thumb times four. Your juice is going to be about 1048 in gravity. Um, Vitas Vinifera, which is the classical wine grape, the average bricks on that is somewhere closer to 20 to 26 and sometimes even higher. I've seen some of the California grapes go really bananas with their, their bricks levels. So right off the bat, your juice is much more concentrated in terms of your sugar content. Also, uh, Vitas vinifera, the grapes tend to be a lot smaller. So the flavor is kind of packed in more tightly into that juice, I think. So having said that, most of what I would say about you know both not using Concord grapes or Thompson's seedless grapes that you can find in every grocery store around the country – is for the most part, those have been bred for reliability and durability and not a lot for flavor. So I don't think you'd get very much out of those. I think if you do actually have a, a source of wild Concord grapes, that could actually be interesting. So if you get those, give those a shot. I just have a real strong bias against using table grapes. You know, and uh, my comments come from the fact that I used to grow Concord grapes, uh, one of the places I lived. And, uh, uh, you know, at least those, I didn't really get much flavor from them. So I was kind of like, why would you bother with that? 
uh, and now I live in wine country where we have lots and lots of flavorful grapes. So, uh, you know, I, I can't say that I've ever tried the Concords for actual brewing, though. So my comments were based on something that really may have no bearing whatsoever on using them in your beer. So I would I would definitely give the wild fruit a try, though, if you think it's yeah, it's got any interesting characters. And, of course, I think it will be great in a Saison. I think everything's great in a Saison. <laughs> I think you can make a taco Saison and everything would be wonderful. Oh, now. There you go. All right. Now, regarding sanitizing the fruit, one of the things that we had said in the podcast was, hey, we don't worry about sanitizing the fruit before we add it. And we had a listener, uh, Ewan, from Scotland, and he'd had some bad luck. He said, in the recent Brew Files episode, you said that you were probably safe to add fruit later in the fermentation without fear of infection. I once made a 23-liter batch of Hefeweizen. I make a lot of Hef. And once fermentation was complete, I bottled half of it and left half of it in the fermenter. I then added one kilogram of defrosted supermarket frozen blackberries into the fermenter and returned it to the fermentation chamber for a few days before bottling. The unfruited half was fine. The fruit beer was pure malt vinegar like we pit in our fish and chips. Now I want fish and chips. Thanks, Ewan. I guess I picked up an acetobacter infection from the fruit. Was I just unlucky? Google seems to think I'm not the only one this has happened to. What are your thoughts on this and on perhaps adding raspberries, etc., to the last 10 minutes of the boil to kill bugs? Would any loss in flavor be significant, or is there a better way? One of my earliest beers was a wit, to which I added fresh zest late in the fermentation. It was great, but I let the oranges bob around in a bucket of star sand first. I actually repeated that brew yesterday and added the sanitized zest to the boil at 10 minutes, to be sure, to be sure. Thanks for all the great work that you guys do. P.S. Please add metric numbers in brackets in your books. We try. We really do try. Uh, we have a lot of editors tell us to do that, too. And sometimes it's just hard to remember to do it when you're in the middle of writing a big, long book. Um, and another listener, uh, David Pike, actually, in reflection to this, he's he wrote in to say that he gives his fruit a brief boil to give some leeway before adding in the secondary. So he takes frozen fruit, adds in a small amount of water, gives it a brief boil, and then adds that in. Um to you and I say, I think you kind of got unlucky. I've never, I've never seen that happen with frozen fruit on my own, particularly not commercially packaged frozen fruit. However, that's not saying that that's not going to be a problem. I don't think you're going to gain anything by putting it in the boil for ten minutes. If you do want to do it as a hot addition, I would actually do it in a more whirlpool fashion because that's going to be enough heat to kill off anything that's living there. But yeah, I'm still relatively surprised that you had an issue. Yeah, I mean, I've used uh, homegrown and picked fruit and not had that problem. I would definitely avoid putting it into the boil because, number one, you're going to lose a lot of flavor. And number two, you run a real risk of setting the pectin and making raspberry beer jam. Uh, so I just wouldn't do that. Uh, I'm, I'd like to hear more from David Pike about uh, his brief boil because, again, that's a, that's a recipe for jam there. Mmm, beer jam. Mmm, yeah, I know. It doesn't sound too bad, huh? So there you guys go. Obviously, there's more feedback about fruit because turns out y'all like adding fruit. We had listeners write in and tell us uh, almost all their beers involve fruit in some way, shape, or form. Uh, so definitely, uh, definitely a, a large topic, and we'll be revisiting it because there's even more to do than what we just talked about for 40 minutes. I guess it's about time to go have a beer now? I think so. Let's do it. Okay, we're going to head over to the pub, and when we get back, we'll be talking about the beer life, so please stick around. Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes, including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Ruben Brew's 2017 Great American Beer Festival Gold Medal winning Goza. 
Right now, Brewers Publications is giving Experimental Homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to BrewersPublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right. You'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at BrewersPublications.com. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. We're sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, wherever the heck you are, and we're having a couple beers. Uh, Drew's having something exotic, and I'm having something straight ahead. So why don't you tell us about your beer there, Drew? Well, and I'm having something that fits in with the previous brew files theme and all the feedback we just went through. I'm having a collaboration beer between the brewery down in Placentia, California, and the Proof over in Belgium, and they call it THK, or Triple Honey Creek. It's a, a sour cherry triple with Yucatan honey added to it, and it comes in at 9.3%. Really interesting, kind of that right level of the sourness and sort of earthy sour cherry qualities to it with a really lovely pink color. The one thing I do notice that that's kind of a little strange about it is it's got a little bit of a muddy finish to it, but I do find that a lot with the DeProof beers. So... Still a very interesting experience because all those different things come across, although I don't know if I'd actually be able to tell uh, tell you right off the bat that the honey was from the Yucatan and not from someplace else. But very nice, uh, interesting use of fruit. And you, Denny? I am sitting here drinking a delicious Pilsner from Frame Brewing, one of uh, the real gems we have here in the Pacific Northwest. These guys could not make a bad beer of any style if they set out to do that. Uh, everything they make is just stunning. And I was in Trader Joe's yesterday, and I saw their Pilsner in cans. And uh, I love beer in cans for a number of reasons. It makes it easily portable. It really protects the beer nicely. Uh, and this is, at least to my tastes, this is a really nice German-style Pilsner. Delicious malt character to it. A real firm bitterness. Great Pills aroma. I mean, if you've had a really good Pilsner, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, this beer was absolutely delicious. We've been having some fairly warm weather here, so it really hit the spot on a hot day. I'm just kind of jealous you can get it in Trader Joe's. Yeah, I know, man. I, I couldn't believe it. I was walking down the beer aisle to pick up my usual bottle of Le Fin du Monde, and, which I did, 
And there was Freem Pilsner. Actually, they had their IPA in cans also. But their Pilsner is just an absolutely delightful beer. So I was helpless to pick up a six-pack. Yeah, and this is where I put in my usual reminder that if you're going to buy beer from Trader Joe's, make sure, if you at all possible, that you check the can dates or bottle dates because Trader Joe's does warm storage for their beer. So it yeah. doesn't always do the beer favors. No, it doesn't, although I've never had a bad one uh, because of that. So maybe I've just gotten lucky. Maybe it's because uh, here in Eugene, people buy a lot of beer at Trader Joe's. Or maybe you just have no taste. Yeah, well, <laughs> you, you can say that, but you'd be wrong. Well, and speaking of uh, taste and the fact that I had a deproof beer, you're about to go to Belgium. Aren't you a lucky man? Yeah, I am. Uh, my wife and I are heading to Netherlands and Belgium. Uh, one reason I'm looking forward to it is because I don't have to work. Uh, generally, when I travel, I'm going to a conference or something like that, and I don't have to do that this time. Just go and have fun. The The main purpose of the trip was to go visit my wife's 1976 Volkswagen bus, which, uh, through a long story which I'll spare you, ended up in the Netherlands. Uh, but then, of course, when we're that close, uh, we're going to make a side trip down to Belgium, get into Brussels, and immediately go do a walking tour of central Brussels on a beer and chocolate tour, which I am really, really looking forward to. Then we head over to Leuven for a couple days, and uh, there we're going to be actually hooking up with one of our podcast listeners, Darren Oman, who lives uh, in the Leuven area, and we're going to be going with him to the Zythos Beer Fest, which is the largest beer festival in Belgium, I'm told. Uh, the publicity says there are going to be 650 beers there. No, I'm not going to try them all. Uh, but it should be a lot of fun, and I'm really looking forward to meeting Darren, and I'm so pleased that he contacted me. Then we're off to Bruges for four days, and we're going to use that kind of like a little base of operations where we go uh, and do some sightseeing, and we're going to make a side trip down to uh, Popering and the Indivreed, I'm sure I've just butchered that name, cafe that's uh, near St. Sixtus to try some of their delicious beers there. And after uh, four days there, we're going to be heading back up to the Amsterdam area, staying just outside of Amsterdam, and uh, going to hit some museums there and seeing all the good things that uh, that it has to offer. So while it's not uh, really a beer-centric trip, it's there's going to be a lot of beer drinking on it. So it, it's going to be really fun. I'm looking forward to it. Well, and of course, since Denny is going to be on the road, that means uh, the next episode after this one that you're going to hear, episode 92, is going to be a little odd. It's going to be a repeat of some of our favorite things uh, from the past, along with some uh, you know new rappers so that we can reflect on everything. So don't worry. The show's not going anywhere. Denny's just going away to Belgium, and I hope that you uh, get to have a great time. Uh, Belgium is one of my favorite places in the world, and not just for the beer. Yeah, man, I am, I am really looking forward to it. I mean, we're, we're going to be there during like tulip season in the Netherlands. So, uh, we have a, a pass to, uh, visit one of the big tulip areas there. And, uh, there's a whole bunch of cool stuff that's going to be happening. Awesome. Yeah. And I'm kind of jealous of the Zythos Festival. Of course, if it were me, I'd be trying to get through as many of those beers as I can, but you and I have, uh, slightly different speeds. Yeah, you know, I I bought uh, I bought twelve tasting tickets for myself, and we're going with you know uh, three other people plus Darren, uh, and we each have twelve tasting tickets. My guess is that my wife won't make it through her whole dozen, so I may end up with a few more. 
Well, now uh, instead of talking about traveling, let's talk about some things closer to home and uh, some of the. Well, you know, beer news isn't always positive, so let's talk about Ballast Point. You know, our friendly craft brewers in San Diego who were purchased by Constellation, which is a big liquor wine conglomerate, for one billion dollars. You know, put that little pinky right next to the corner of your mouth there when you say that. Uh, a number that absolutely staggered and floored the industry when it happened. And since then, Constellation's been, well, flooding the market with Sculpin and Ballast Points available everywhere. They used to be super expensive. They've cut the price back down a little bit. But Ballast Point also went around and has been opening up satellite tasting rooms, satellite breweries. They had a whole separate sour facility. They were planning on putting a a new brew pub near the, the new Giants Field up in San Francisco. I think that's right. Uh, a new one in San Francisco, and they have a new location in Long Beach and one and Boardwalk in downtown Disney in Anaheim. So massive thing. Well, they just announced immediately that they were closing down two of their tasting room locations, including the one in Temecula, which is the closest one to me. It's still not that close. Um, and they're abandoning the plans for the pub in San Francisco, and they shut down their sour brewing facility. And we, there's a great article by Brewbound, uh, brewbound.com, and it kind of breaks down some of it. But hidden deep in the details, beyond just the whole, like, hey, you know, they're shutting down X, Y, and Z, was the fact that Constellation has taken at least two write-offs for what they consider to be the depreciation in the value of the Ballast Point name and the trademarks and the product. And in the last two years, these two write-offs have totaled to nearly $200 million. So taking a 20% write-off in value over their overall valuation of what the deal was that they bought Ballast Point for. (laughs) I hardly know what to say about this. Uh, To me, it's like just business as usual. Well, and then, of course, also kind of interesting was the guys from Ballast Point who helped set them up after the sale. They had also had the Ballast Point Spirits Company going for a while, you know, they were making a, a gin and a couple of other things. And when they left Ballast Point, they got to take their distillery brands with them and they started Cutwater Spirits. And Cutwater has been big recently because not just for the the straight spirits, but they've been moving into the mixed cocktails. And mixed cocktails are coming back in a big way. It's no longer the club can cocktails that, you know, used to haunt the world in the 70s and the 80s. You know, people have been making, you know, sort of canned cocktails and with sort of craft ethos behind them. And they just announced that they sold Cutwater to ABI for some undisclosed amount of money. So in other words, these guys have made two really big sales a couple of years apart. Good Lord. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's what happens when you start playing with the big boys. I guess. But man, must be nice in some ways. And uh, But going from the big boys to the big girls, we've got uh, really great news for about Pink Brute Society. Yeah, this is so cool, man. Uh, we may have mentioned in the past, I hope we mentioned in the past, that uh, the Pink Boots Society yearly gets together with our buddies up at Yakima Chief Hops and comes up with a special blend of Pink Boot hops. And uh, this year, 
they managed to raise $100,000 from the Pink Boots Blend to go to their scholarship fund to fund education efforts for women in the industry. Uh, they sold about 30,000 pounds of the Pink Boots Blend, which was a combination of Laurel, Mosaic, Simcoe, Sabro, and Glacier. And to tell you the truth, I haven't tried it. I haven't had the fortune to run across a beer made with it. But man, it sounds good, and I am so stoked that uh, Yakima Chief and and the Pink Boot Society got together and did this, and they've got a hundred grand for their scholarship fund. That's just that's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah, and kudos to Yakima Chief and Country Malt Group for for kicking that money in from the sale. Uh, I mean, you think about it, thirty thousand pounds—that's fifteen tons of those hops. And I've been in a couple places where they've had you know. Pink Boots beers, and I've seen online a couple of places where they'll have actually a tasting flight of like five or six uh, beers made with the Pink Boots blend. So pretty awesome to see. Awesome that there's going to be that opportunity out there. And, you know, yay, good news in the beer industry. Yep, no kidding, man. That's really good news. And from, you know, good news about hops and education, we go to somebody who is trying to do something uh, personally educational. (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, I was going to say, an effort of personal uh, personal exploration and spirituality. How, how's that? No, I don't think spirituality has anything to do with it. Yeah, well, so th- I, th- I can't remember if we talked about this earlier, but an employee of 50 West Brewing Company in Ohio, uh, a guy named Del Hall, had said that he was going to do this year uh, nothing but beer for the 40 days of Lent. Now, he's not anywhere near the first person to do this, uh, even in modern times, but the whole thing, of course, being based on the idea that you know, monks during the Middle Ages and, and later times, when they would do their Lenten fast, they would have beer, and the beer would be what sustains them. That's always the story that goes along with, say, Doppelbach, for instance. You know, Doppelbach was supposedly brewed to be a stronger beer to help fortify the monks and keep them moving through Lent. And he, he's gone through this. He didn't do as, as rigorous a job as the other guy who did this like five, ten years ago. Uh, but he did, and you know, he drank nothing but the beer for 40 days, and he didn't stay devoted to one style. Apparently, he jumped around all the different beers that were being made there, and he's made it out the other side of it, and he he told the Cincinnati Inquirer that he feels like he's in his 20s and that he lost more than 40 pounds doing this diet. I suspect some of that's just from a sheer lack of calories, and also I would suspect from a sheer lack of nutrition. <laughs> yeah, really. Don't do this, people. This is not a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> diet with care. But uh, you know, or if you're going to do this, at least talk to your doctor so that your doctor can, uh, you know, knock you upside the head. Yep. All right. I think that's enough beer news for today. I think it's time for us to go off to the library and talk some things we've been reading. Sounds good to me. Uh, I'll see you there. We'll be back in just a minute. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. 
No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Welcome back, and we are now in the library. Can you smell the books? That distinctive smell of old paper? A little bit of leather binding? I know you can. I can, too. All I can smell is the beer you spilled. Well, that goes along. It's a beer library, after all. <laughs> and we got a couple things to uh, talk about, and both of these are personally related to us. So, uh, first things first, if you, uh, if you go to homebrewersassociation.org, uh, they are running for, I think, at least the next six Mondays. I forget. Uh, for the next six Mondays, they are running an off-flavor series where each week they're highlighting a different off-flavor, the causes of it, the the sensations that you get from it, and more importantly, what the heck you do when you get that off-flavor, or how to, more importantly, how to prevent it. And so every week for on Monday for the next you know six, seven weeks, I forget how many of those I wrote, uh, there will be off-flavor articles that will be available for your perusal. And yeah, I it, it's been a while. But uh, still, these are great. I had a lot of fun writing them down to both try and get very clear causes of what makes an off-flavor happen, but also very clear diagnoses of what the heck to do with it. So go read those at homebrewersassociation.org. And we have even more stuff that you can read from us if you weren't quite done with that yet. You know, I think this is a really good way to assure yourself that despite what it sounds like, Drew really does know what he's talking about most of the time. Most of the time. I try. I tried to qualify it there. Yeah. And if I don't know what I'm talking about, I sure as heck try and sound like I know what I'm talking yes, about. Yes, I know, man. I've learned how to catch that. Hmm. And then uh, other pieces of uh, appearance from us, Danny, you want to tackle this one? Uh, we just did a live chat for Brew Your Own Magazine. If you are a subscriber to their website, you can go there and... Uh, Take a listen. Well, I shouldn't say a listen. You can take a look at it because we chatted with our fingers. There was no audio. It was a, a Q&A session, and uh, we got some pretty interesting questions, huh? Yeah, it was kind of great. It was kind of unexpected. We had an hour block, and during that hour, we got a, a chance to answer 25 questions, a lot of times with multiple questions inside the one question and lots and lots of typing. I know I had, yeah. to, give my fingers, I had to give my fingers a break afterwards. Yeah, my my typing was surprisingly better than usual, you know. I, I really had expected lots of more unintelligibility from me, and it wasn't too bad. Yeah, but go uh, go to BYO.com. Uh, we'll include the link. It's BYO.com slash live chat with Denny Con Drew Beecham, with dashes in between everything. If you're a BYO digital member, you'll actually be able to go and read back through it and also read back through other Q&As they've had with, like, you know, winemakers and Brad from, uh, you know, Beersmith and other people. So go back through kind of an interesting resource there. And like I said, we had a lot of fun with it, and we expect that we'll be doing some more of that sort of stuff uh, soon because we are also now going to be featured in the next issue of BYO Magazine as a regular column. 
That's right. We're writing the uh, techniques column for Brew Your Own these days, so uh, get ready to see a lot more of our heresy in print. Yep, and hopefully you guys will go enjoy that. And don't forget that if you're not a BYO member, you can always click the link that's on experimentalbrew.com, become a BYO member, and help support the podcast at the exact same time. And, of course, you can always go to BYO.com. You can sign up there for an annual digital membership, which is distinct from their print membership. Uh, Just do us a favor. Mention experimental brewing in the comments. That's right. Let let them know that uh, that we talked about them. All right. That's enough library stuff, even if it is autodidactic library stuff. Wow. That's very good. That's a big word. We're going to head over to the brewery now and talk about some brewing stuff. Uh, Drew's getting ready to brew. I just did. And uh, we're going to tell you all about it. So please stick around. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief's cryo hops represent the most innovative technology in hop processing, using a patent-pending cryogenic separation process which preserves the components of each hop fraction. Cryo hops pellets provide intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Available now to commercial and home brewers. Learn more at yakimachief.com. We're here in the brewery. There's gleaming stainless steel. There are airlocks bubbling. There's the smell of spilled beer everywhere. Just kind of like the library. We better be more careful in the future. That's why we always have to brew. (laughs) Yeah, because we keep spilling our damn beer. Drew has a big day coming up, and... uh, well, I'll just let him tell you about it. Yeah, so by the time you will hear this episode, it will already be passed. But the day after we record this episode, it's my 45th birthday. So, good Lord. Yes, I was born on 420. Yes, I've heard all the jokes. So, I decided I'm going to brew a batch of beer with my homebrew club because we do a monthly big brew at our at our homebrew shop to kind of teach people what they're doing. And I'm going to do a big, dumb IPA with some new techniques, or at least some new ingredients, and there's going to be a whole big story behind it. You're going to find out more about the beer in the next episode of The Brew Files, because uh, we're going to talk about one of the special ingredients that we're going to use. But suffice it to say, it's going to be an interesting beer, because it's going to be a 1074 IPA, because I was born in 1974. And it got four malts, five hops, and a whole bunch of 45s running through the whole thing. And one of those hop additions is going to be a little different. <laughs> a little different? It's not going to be hops at all. Well, it's a little different, but it's still <laughs> hops in a way. Kind of, yeah, not exactly. Yeah, but uh, yes, stick, stick around for the 45 jokes, uh, the 420 jokes, and you know some new hop science that we're kind of playing around with. And, and this is where I point out that Drew is only a, a year or two older than my son, and I don't even remember my 45th birthday anymore. 
Well, I think didn't you say that when when I was born, you were already married? Yeah, that's true. When when you were born, I was already married, and uh, uh, that was a long time ago. I was married for the first time, I guess I should say. There you go. And it's not just me brewing. You also went and brewed. Yeah, I've been I've been brewing up a storm lately. It seems like I've been able to find some time, and I've got a bunch of new stuff that I, I've been wanting to try. So uh, one of the things that uh, I did, I have a new Pico Z unit, and uh, I managed to get in a brew on that to kind of test it out and see how it works. Uh, beer turned out delicious. I guess I talked about this on the last episode, uh, where I kind of integrated my equipment, uh, brewing on the Z using the uh, jaded corny pillar to chill it down to pitching temp and then uh, using the brew jacket immersion pro to control the temperature on it and it worked really really well although i discovered that uh, you know the brew jacket uh, rod the, that goes down into your fermenter to control the temp is made to be used in a five gallon batch and to have the uh, the beer go all the way up to the top of it since the z only makes two and a half gallons uh, after I did my cold I'd crash in it, I chilled it down to 33 at a cold crash, as I always do, and it worked great. But when I pulled the brew jacket uh, rod out of the chiller, there's a line of ice crystals right at the the interface, you know, where at the the beer level. Uh, it was it was uh, interesting and amusing, and had no negative effect on the beer whatsoever. Well, you know what this says to me. Yes, ice beer. Well, no, well, yes, but no. If you're going to brew with the Z. You gotta make like a professional brewer and and do a double batch, and then use the brew uh, the brew jacket rod. You know, yeah, I could do that, but I didn't. Yep. Well, there's always next time. But I, I like the fact that the Peltier cooler was strong enough that it actually caused freezing. <laughs> yeah, ice crystals to form. It was it was pretty pretty fun actually when I saw it. And while Denny and I have both been brewing, it's going to be time for you guys to brew soon if you're interested at all in joining everybody for the American Homebrewers Association Big Brew Party. You know, that's the day when well, people all around the nation, actually nowadays all around the world, get together to make a batch of beer. And the HA always puts out uh, two recipes every year in order to, you know, get everybody excited and prime your pumps. You don't have to brew one of these recipes, by the way. But it's always nice if people are because then it's there. But this is on May 4th this year is Big Brew. And there are two recipes. One is fantastically named Battle Cow Galacticos New England IPA. <laughs> okay. Uh, from Providence Brewing Company, which features into the uh, the next talk that you're going to hear from us. But uh, the other one is Transatlantic Blondale, uh, written by some knucklehead, namely me. Um, and it's one of my very simple Blondales that's designed to be transformed and turned around into various things. And the HA instructions actually give you a couple of ways to do it. It's a stupidly simple beer. Go figure. It's, you know, just pills malt and some caramel pills or Kara 8. It's one of my favorite ingredients and sometimes hard to find, but still a wonderful beer uh, ingredient. And then hops are Magnum. Anybody surprised? No. Uh, and then a little Willamette on the way out just to give a little thing. And what's actually really great about this recipe is give a couple of variants there to use both an American uh, style yeast, so something like why use 1450, Denise's favorite, or go with a Belgian ale yeast to go make it into more of a Belgian blonde. And then to further it, we even give you some variants to go add extra oof to the beer to make it into an even stronger Belgian blonde. So a lot of fun in this recipe. It's just really a... 
a good drinking beer, a good base recipe that doesn't have to be boring, even though it's actually a relatively simple beer. I will say one thing. I don't know where the AHA picked up the notes on this, but they do mention a secondary in there as an optional step. I don't do that, so you don't have to. Uh, but enjoy this beer. I think you guys will love it, and I hope that you guys let us know if you brewed the Transatlantic Blonde, which is also a featured recipe in the upcoming book, Simple Home Brewing. Yeah, you know, and uh, my rye IPA recipe was a big brew recipe many years ago, so it's nice you finally caught up. I try. I, uh, have, to, I have to give you some lead. You're a little bit older than I am. Yeah, that's, that's right, man. You probably weren't even born when that happened. <laughs> I, I, I certainly wasn't aware. <laughs> that implies you are now. Some days. It just depends upon how much caffeine I've had. That's right. So speaking of being aware, why don't we get the heck out of here? And go over to the lab. All righty. We're going to head over to the lab. We're going to be talking there about some interesting, interesting hop stuff. Uh, a couple different things. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Thanks for joining us here in the lab. Glad you stuck around. We're going to start off with uh, something that is extremely preliminary. Uh, like we always say, uh, science requires repetition, and this is only one test. But it looks kind of interesting so far, huh? Yeah, so this one is just, I caught this in a quick you know, sort of Facebook post. Where, you know, of course, Facebook being where everybody gets their information these days. Uh, <laughs> Justin Amaral, who runs uh, Maniacal Yeast up in Maine, Great name, by the way. He's been doing experiments looking at hops because he does make hop terpenes as well. And he's been doing like isolation from hops, see if there's actually stuff on hops. Because, of course, one of the things that we always talk about, like when we talk about dry hopping is, oh, don't worry about, you know, sanitizing your hops and doing something with your hops. You know, nothing can live. And what Justin just found was he actually found strains of pediococcus on hops. So Pediococcus damnosus, for instance, it is a major wart spoilage bacteria. It's the thing that makes your beer sick, makes your beer smell really bad and a lot of diastole. Just an awful thing that you don't want to have in your beer unless you're making a Alambic, right? And it's not surprising that that he would find this on hops, right? Because, you know, I mean, hops aren't magical in terms of repelling everything. They just kind of keep everything from being able to grow. At least that's what we've always taught ourselves. But what's interesting to me, and what actually really caught my eye in his post about this, was that he managed to take the pediococcus that he isolated from the hops and then grow it in plates that had media that had been hopped to different IBU levels. So one plate was hopped at 10 IBUs, another plate at 20 IBUs, and one at 30 IBUs. And he got the pediococcus off those hops to grow on all three of those plates. 
So very, very interesting, very kind of head scratchy. And I don't know if it has any actual practical concerns for us yet, but it is kind of one of those, hmm, that makes you think. You know, I guess I'm not super surprised to find that hops have pediococcus on them. I think that there's probably a lot of things that have pediococcus on them. You know, so like like you say, it isn't terribly surprising, but the fact that uh, it doesn't seem to be deterred by hops kind of is, uh, goes against the the conventional wisdom of pediococcus, huh? Exactly. That, that's the reason why that, that was the thing that was really kind of things that make you go, hmm, out of it. But very preliminary, but just kind of interesting thing to note. And going from one hop topic, I think we got to go to another hop topic, which is the hop topic that we've been talking about for a while now. So, Denny. You know, the, the two big topics in the brewing world these days seem to be uh, oxidation and hop creep. And those are the two things that home brewers are talking about, whether they should be or not. Uh, I had a I had a beer going, and I decided that I would find out what hop creep was all about and what it could do to a beer. So I had a, a fairly standard pale ale slash IPA going, uh, you know, just pale malt, some C60, uh, and I had a I had a bunch of uh, Veterans Blend hops around. You remember last November we were talking about those? We bought a bunch of them and uh, have been giving them away and using them ourselves. I used half an ounce of Veterans Blend as first word, three quarters of an ounce at sixty, two ounces at flame out. So this beer was fermenting away. Uh, and let me see how long had it been going here. Uh, I brewed it on March 14th and on the 30th of March, so, you know, a little over two weeks later, I decided that uh, it was time to dry hop it and I would find out what all this hop creep dry hop stuff was. Uh, and unlike a lot of people who dry hop in primary, I don't. I just don't like the effects that happen when I do that. So uh, I purged a uh, bucket with CO2, totally filled it, left the lid on as I racked, uh, just kind of stuck the hose in gently, racked the beer into my CO2 purged secondary. At that point, the gravity was 1.007, down from starting at 1.057. And so I cold crashed it for a Couple weeks, I believe. I'm looking. I'm looking here at my notebook. This is this is brew number 540, Drew. Uh huh. So so I cold crashed it from uh, March 30th until April 4th. Checked the gravity again before I dry hopped it. Still 1.007. So I was fairly certain that fermentation was over. I uh, added five ounces of the Veterans Blend pellets, which comes out to a about seven grams per liter. So just under the shell hammer threshold of uh, not getting uh, or of, uh, of getting uh, bad off flavors from dry hopping. I cranked the temperature back up to 72 because I wanted to let it sit at uh, something approaching room temperature to give it as much chance as possible of uh, fermentation taking off with all those hops in there. And I let it sit there for a week at 72 degrees uh, before I cold crashed it back down to drop the hops. But I checked the gravity again uh, before cold crashing, and it was still 1.007. 
So basically, I was unable to make hop creep happen. Uh, I'm, of course, that doesn't prove that it doesn't happen. Uh, but maybe my particular method of dropping the yeast and racking to a secondary before adding the dry hops prevented that from happening. Uh, I don't know. More experimentation is needed, obviously. But we may be on to something that could help you avoid hop creep. Maybe. I mean, there's plenty of – it seems to be plenty of evidence, I should say, that hop creep is a thing, you know, particularly in, in other papers, including the Shellhammer papers. So, yeah, right. I, I'm wondering if if the time that, you, that it took before you got to your dry hop, along with that cold crash – yeah, it helped get enough out of the way. But at the same time, I would I would think even after a cold crash, there should, in theory, be enough yeast to trigger some of this effect. But then again, we've never gotten clarification around, I think, from the Shellhammer say, like how much yeast was in the beer. Yeah, and you know, and, and I know that uh, every time this comes up, you always say, oh yeah, there's there's plenty of yeast in the beer for this to happen. But I don't know if anybody has ever actually gone through this same process that I did uh, dry hopping. And like I said, this is just my normal process. I wasn't really trying to avoid making hop creep happen. As a matter of fact, I kind of wanted it to happen so I could find out you know, what the effects are and what it's all about. But my normal practice is always to uh, drop the yeast and rack to a secondary before dry hopping. And I'll, I'll mention also that... Uh, I uh, totally flushed the uh, fermenter with CO2 every time I opened it up. And I will also say that when I kegged this beer a few days ago, this is one of the best beers I've made in a long, long time. Those five ounces of Veterans Blend really, really made for a nice IPA. There you go. Yeah, nice blend of five hops. So I think what this actually really calls for, as we've said time and time again, science bears repeating. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, and I have a lot more of those Veterans Blend hops in my freezer along with other things, and I make a lot of IPA. So I'm definitely going to be giving this a try uh, again and seeing whether or not it actually happens. I think so, too. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. And, uh, I mean, after all, this is kind of new old stuff to us. Uh, I actually looked back. You know, we've been talking about hop creep since somewhere around episode 20. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I know, man. We were some of the first people to even mention it. Ooh, let's go. <laughs> yeah, right. Yay on us. But again, if anybody else wants to try this to see how it works, right, leave the beer in primary for a while. I, normally, I only leave it, you know, maybe seven days, but this time I was busy and traveling and uh, left it a couple weeks. Crashed it to drop the yeast, rack it to a secondary fermenter, uh, you know, crash the yeast again, add your dry hops, uh, let that sit in the 70s uh, for a while to see if anything's going to happen, and then crash it again to drop the hops out. And let me know what you guys find. Indeed. More data. That's right. All right. Let's get out of here. Let's lounge. All righty. We're going to head over to the lounge uh, where we're talking to Gary Glass and Matt Balling from the AHA about this year's huge homebrew party in Providence, Rhode Island. Stick around, we're going to be right back. The Wild Rustic Spring Private Collection from Y-East offers a selection of yeast and bacteria cultures characteristic of Belgian and sour styles to pair with the new season. 
3725 Beer de Garde, 3031 Saison Brett and 5223 Lactobacillus Brevis are available April through June at your local homebrew shop, exclusively from our private culture collection. These are the strains that exemplify the beers of Europe in Cezanne, Lambic Styles, Goes, Brett Beers, and more. And now you can use them to create world-class beers worldwide. No matter the direction you take these wild, rustic cultures, they'll become your new tradition. Find out more about which styles pair best with this release at yeastlab.com. here it's comfy chair time pull up a seat it's time for us to talk and today's talk we're actually sitting down with uh, gary glass and matt bowling of the american homebrewers association to talk homebrew con what's going on what's special why you should go to providence and why the heck did they schedule the thing when the red Sox and the paw Sox weren't in town so why don't you go ahead and sit back and listen to our conversation with matt and gary and find out like i said homebrew con it's a big old party. Well, you guys, if you've followed me at all, you know that I'm a split child of the South and of New England. And, of course, I haven't missed a homebrew con in I don't know how long. And homebrew con returns home or to partial my homestead of New England this year. And what better way to talk about it than to actually get the knuckleheads responsible for organizing this thing and helping us out with an event. Uh, we've got Gary Glass and uh, Matt Bowling from the... Homebrewers Association, American Homebrewers Association. Let's be complete with titles. Uh, hi, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. <laughs> yeah. So just to set things up, the last time that HomebrewCon, back when it was the AHA National Homebrewers Convention, was in New England, it was 1991 So, in, in lovely Manchester, New Hampshire. So we're finally back in New England. What took so long? Yes, finally. Well, you know, finding the, the the right venue was was part of it. Uh, we, we we were wanting to do it in Boston, but uh, the prices in Boston are are just so expensive. So um, when we when we took a look at the the convention center in Rhode Island, they have a few beautiful facility for us and uh, right downtown Providence. And uh, so once we took a look at it, we knew that this was this was going to work for us. Well, and just to give people a sort of a rough idea, I mean when the Conference had happened in Manchester, New Hampshire. I think the rough conference size was like 300 people. And this year we're looking at how many people? Uh, closer to 3,000. Right. So a small scale difference here. And yeah, Boston is not a cheap city. But the good thing is that, I mean, what, Boston is 50 miles away from uh, from Providence? A short train ride. I think uh, last time I checked, if you're on the Acela, it's less than 30 minutes. So... Real quick, real quick, right into the same area. Yeah, I know. I know we were, when we were looking at uh, travel times uh, from from Logan, uh, there's you connect to the, the South Station in, in Boston, and then it's like a 38 minute train ride to yep. downtown mm-hmm. Providence, which puts you right next to the convention center. So 
very easy to get uh, get to from from either the the airport in Providence or from Boston, where you can get more direct flights. Yeah, well, and I'll be flying in from LA to to Providence, so uh, yeah, it'll it'll be fun to see because I've, I don't think I've ever flown into Providence, and I've only been in Providence once when I got a tattoo. Sweet. <laughs> so what's what, what's this, this time <laughs> tattoo going to be? I don't know, but I haven't quite decided. Maybe a, a beer glass, and that of course brings us to the the big topic of conversation. I think for a lot of people about Providence, which is, I last year's homebrew con was in Portland. Portland, Oregon, where you can't really swing an empty pint glass without running into a tap of craft beer. So I know people are going to look at like Providence and go, "What are my options there? What's the what's the beer scene like in Providence?" Uh, it's it's good, and actually the the closest brewery is very much closer than where where we were in in Portland last year, which seems strange. But there is a brewery right across the street from the convention center in in Providence. What's the name of the brewery? Trinity, it's a it's a brew pub. It's been it's been there for quite a while, uh, but there's there's a couple of other breweries that are within walking distance of uh, of the convention center, and uh, you know a, a really great beer scene. And like you said, you're you're just a little over half an hour away from Boston and all of those breweries in that area. So so the beer that's going to be served in the in in that area is going to be excellent and. It's definitely going to have that that New England style flair. So, um, something that uh, that anybody who's who's not from that area can look forward to to checking out. Well, and I mean, New England has such a long history in the craft beer scene. And, and again, I I was in college in Boston from ninety two to ninety six, and I, that was where I started to learn to love craft beer. And you had all the old players there. You know, not only Sam Adams slash Boston Beer Company, but Harpoon. Uh, Otter Creek, Long Trail, you know, a lot of these guys who are actually still around, Otter Creek's not anymore, unfortunately. But at, at one moment in time, you know, New England is sort of a bedrock of traditional American craft brewing with all that harking back to sort of more traditional styles. And of course, nowadays, as we know it, it's the home of Denny's favorite style, the the hazy New England IPA. You know, I I think it's going to be great because this is one conference I won't have to worry about drinking too much. So, well, there are a lot of great breweries around Providence that uh, specialize in that that style. So, for people who are interested in finding some of those New England IPAs, uh, Proclamation Ale Works is right next to the airport. So, when you get into Providence, I mean, that's one of the first places I would hit up. And you know, as Gary was saying earlier, there's a lot of great breweries downtown that uh, we were there doing a, a site visit a couple months ago and got a chance to uh, visit the uh, local brewery scene. So, um, you know, like I said, there's going to be a lot of awesome awesome beers to drink, but for people who are interested in that style, this is definitely the conference to come to. You know, and one thing, one thing you guys aren't aware of yet is that we are going to be putting on a party again this year with our friends at uh, Brewcraft Country Malt Group at a place called Isle Brewers Guild, which is like a, a number of different breweries operating out of one facility. We're going to have buses going back and forth and everything. So uh, people will be able to get a, a look at a lot of different kinds of beer that night, and it's all free. Yeah, and I've, awesome. I've been when there, that? too. That's, it's, a, it's a really great facility. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, really interesting people. We hope to have them up on the show before too long so we can talk because it's an interesting concept that they're running there. Um, so obviously, okay, that's craft beer, but let's face it, we're home brewers and that's what we really care about. Right. So 
what do we have lined up for the convention this year? Like a uh, keynote and uh, well, the keynote speaker is um, Dan Kleben, uh from uh, Main Beer Company. Who before he started the brewery, he was uh, very much a home brewer. Uh, started out on a extremely small scale, one of one of the very early on nano breweries, and has built up into a, a very successful. Uh, you know, I think I think they're surpassing ten thousand. Uh, barrels per year, um, but one of the cool things about about Dan and and his brother who run the the brewery is that from the start they were they were really dedicated to their their model of of giving back to the environment uh, or, or giving back to to um, to causes, and so they, I think they they participate in one percent for the environment, which means one percent of all their their uh, their revenue goes to. Um, supporting environmental causes, so, um, pretty cool to see what they're doing. Plus, they're making really kick-ass beer. Um, I don't even know if they make a New England IPA, but they do make some really tasty beers that aren't New England IPAs. Well, that would be good for Denning. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's right. And then you know, there's Pro Night, right? So if people can't make it out of the convention center, they can't make it out of the conference because I, I I know that's always been a very weird thing. We've had the conference around the country in lots of different places. And sometimes it feels like once you get into the conference, it's really hard to sort of break out. Yeah. But now, you know, so Pro Night's going to be there just so that everybody who, you know, isn't going to necessarily make it up to Boston or someplace else, they're going to have an opportunity to be able to sample beers from around the New England region, correct? Yes, most definitely. And, and not just beers. I was just uh, exchanging emails with, uh, with Michael Fairbrother of uh, Moonlight Meadery, and he's going to be there as well. Oh, that's great. That's really good. Uh, well, Mike. Mike is a longtime supporter of the HA, and and frankly, quite the hell of a meat maker. So that that's going to be awesome. Uh, yeah, Mike is also given a uh, seminar uh, during the the day on Friday. Uh, something that we actually are pretty excited to see this year is a, a a big focus on mead. So you know, last year in Portland, we were only able to feature a couple of mead seminars, and this year. Uh, we're going to be starting off right away on Thursday at two o'clock. We've got a seminar on on Boucher, which is a um, a uh, style of mead with where you like burn the honey uh, to to make the uh, get better fl- get different flavors. And then uh, Sergio uh, Motella, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. I certainly hope I am. But he's the president of the American Mead Makers Association. He's going to be giving a brewing beer style mead seminar. Uh, as I already mentioned, uh, um, Michael Fairbrother will be joining us to giving a seminar on mastering mead making on Friday. Uh, we're going to have a mead panel, and we're also going to have uh, a booth for the American Mead Makers Association at Club Night on Friday. So a lot of mead is going to be uh, mead talks and mead sharing is going to be going on at the conference. So uh, we're really excited to be putting a, a heavier focus on mead this year. Well, it- and that actually brings us to the topic of seminars, because as I understand it, there's a quite a bevy of seminars for this year. Yes, we've got uh, 68 different seminars plus three pre-conference workshops that uh, 
uh, you can register for as kind of an add-on to the conference. But some of the really great ones I think that people are going to be looking forward to, uh, there's one called Brewing Simple, great beer with less effort and more fun by these these two guys, Drew Beecham and Denny Kahn. I don't know if your listeners know much about those two. Um, we've got a lot of really great stuff from some really renowned speakers. We've got Ron Pattinson. He's the... Uh, the author of the the beer blog Shut Up About Barclay Perkins. He's going to be giving a seminar about Scottish beer. Um, we're going to be doing a seminar from Lorena Evans and Melinda Spaulding called Ferment That. If anybody was with us at the conference in Minneapolis, they gave a really great presentation, um, just really all about all kinds of other fermentations besides beer. Uh, kombucha, vinegars, uh, um, um, kimchi, you know, it's going to be just kind of all-encompassing. Um, we're actually going to also have Teresa McCullough, who is the uh, lead for the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History uh, in their beer. Gary might be able to help me out a little bit here, but she's basically a professional beer historian. Yeah, yeah, she's a beer historian for the Smithsonian. And and has Charlie's, uh, Charlie's Brew Spoon. Exactly, yeah. yes. She's going to be giving a, a seminar that I'm really looking forward to that basically is going to be taking a look at – she's going to be comparing the early uh, computer industry clubs, com- computer clubs of the early 1970s to how homebrew clubs nowadays are operating and kind of drawing some similarities to how the early homebrew clubs – uh, really gave rise to the modern craft brewing movement. I'm really I haven't seen a whole lot about it yet, but I, I've seen her presentations before, so I'm really looking forward to her. Uh, we're going to have a lot of the the you know really uh, great home brewing names: Gordon Strong, Stan Hieronymus. Um, you know, it's it's going to be just three full days of all you can learn and. Um, Pretty much anything you want to know about homebrewing is going to be covered here. So um, I highly encourage people to go to the website, homebrewcon.org, and click on the session schedule and, and check out the full schedule. As I always try and tell people, you know, most of us are involved with our friends and our relations, and they can't, they can only take so much beer talk. You know, as, after a certain point in time, eyes glaze over and people will go, okay, can we talk about something else? And I always describe homebrewcon as, three to four days, depending on how long you want to make it, of absolute unadulterated beer talk. And you can talk all the beer that you want without people going, "Uh uh-huh, 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 that's nice. (laughs) That's right. And also, I have to say, I'm really looking forward to Ron's talk on Scottish beers, because if, if you pay any attention to Ron's writings, he has very, very strong opinions on how we've all been taught uh, things that are incredibly wrong about Scottish beer. So it'll be kind of nice to see. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Another one that I think is really exciting to look forward to, uh, we're doing the another international homebrewers panel. We did something like that in 2017 in Minneapolis where we had people from all over the country talking about what homebrewing looks like in their part of the world. Uh, we've got representatives from Chile, um, uh, Chile, the United Kingdom, Canada, Switzerland, uh, and it's going to be moderated by uh, one of our governing committee members, Kathy Yen Lee, who is a uh, resident of, uh, of, she's in Canada as well. So uh, that one's going to be really cool. And that's on Saturday at 1130. Well, and who's who are the un- poor, unfortunate people who get the Saturday morning 9 a.m. slot? <laughs> 
Yeah, those people all—they all hate getting that email every year. Whenever I tell them what they're, what time they're scheduled to speak, but um, there's going to be some really good ones. So the people who are are brave enough to join us for uh, the 9 a.m. seminars after homebrew, after excuse me, after uh, club night, uh, there's going to be a seminar about about hazy IPAs and using adjuncts and uh, malts in your your mashing process. Um, we're going to have a seminar from the Brewers Association's safety ambassador, Matt Stinchfield, uh, about going pro. Uh, we're going to have a seminar on do-it-yourself advanced technology for cheapskate and anarchistic homebrewers. So basically a do-it-yourself <laughs> kind of guide to making some really cool and easy stuff to use in your brew day. Um, and uh, speaker uh, Susan Verberg is going to be giving a seminar on medieval Groot ales. Um, so a lot of really great stuff. Uh, every single seminar slot this year. I'm I'm really excited. And a lot of stuff, you know, that we've not covered in the past. Um, something that HomebrewCon is, is known for is having some of the, the best seminars and, and educational sessions about homebrewing. But, you know, there's some processes in homebrewing that, you know, just don't change up all that much. So uh, it's always nice to bring in some some angles that we've never really covered before. We're going to be doing a seminar about brewing without hops, which is uh, something I've never really um, read up a lot on. So I'm pretty excited about that one as well. There's uh, also going to be a myth-busting panel discussion that I'm going to be part of, too. and that, I, I think that could be interesting. Yes, on Saturday at... Um, 10 o'clock? Uh, no, I'm... Excuse me, on, on Friday, sorry, Denny, <laughs> on Friday at 10.15, they'll have Denny, uh, Martin Brungard, Amanda Burkemper, Ron Minkoff, and uh, Jeff Gladish. Really awesome panel. And, of course, you know, since we joked about the uh, Saturday morning slots, let's talk a little bit the reason why people hate to have the Saturday morning slot. Let's talk club night. How many, how many clubs are signed up? Right now, we have over 40 clubs signed up uh, for club night, which is actually, uh, we're, we're at the point now where we have more clubs signed up now with two months left to go before the conference than we did uh, going into club night last year in Portland. So we're really excited. You know, there's a lot of clubs from the New England area, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, uh, well, not specifically New England, but uh, we've also got clubs from Ohio, Virginia, Pennsylvania, um, all over the place. And, and as I mentioned before, the American Meat Makers Association is going to be setting up and having a, a booth there with some of their members' homebrewed mead. Um, so club night, anybody who's never been to the conference before, it's it's just something you have to experience in person to really take it all in and it's really something that people look forward to every year and and we're really excited that so many people are going to be joining us for it again uh on friday night i always just wish that club night were longer and that my liver had more capacity <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm, I'm with you it's always like my favorite event of the entire year you know and i get to go to a lot of cool beer events but there is nothing else like like club night, and you know, every year I'm just, every every year I'm amazed that some homebrewers come up with something, some combination of flavors that I never would never dream up, and pulls it off and makes something delicious out of who knows what, and uh, and while while being dressed as some medieval knight or some alien or whatever club theme they happen the to have, 
uh, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Uh, every year, I'm just so super excited to see what what clubs are going to bring. Well, that's always good. Now, the other thing that has changed in the past couple of years has been we've gone from having that big formal banquet at the end of the the conference where all the winners of the NHC were announced to now the winners get announced earlier and we have what's been called like the knockout party or you know a couple of different things now it's changed over the over the past couple of years as as we're finding our way through it what can you tell us about the knockout party for this year uh for the knockout party i mean this is an opportunity for people to come together and kind of celebrate the fact that HomebrewCon, well we we bring in everybody who had just won a medal from the National Homebrew Competition Awards Ceremony, and it's just the excitement in the room after somebody wins a medal and gets to go and celebrate with the rest of the conference is something, again, that's hard to explain. But, you know, being able to close out the conference with a, a party that everybody is welcome to, and, you know, there's awesome food, and there's um, there's obviously... Uh, lots of homebrew beer for people to enjoy. We raffle off a bunch of prizes, like tickets to the next year's Homebrew Con, tickets to Great American Beer Festival, uh, a lifetime AHA membership. Um, and it ends a little bit earlier in the evening because, you know, what we want to do is allow people some time to go out and explore the city and explore the homebrewing scene and uh, in the, the beer scene and in Providence. Because, you know, in the, in the past, we would end the conference so late each night that people never really got a chance to um, leave the convention center. So ending it early is has been has been great because we've we've been able to people haven't have an an excuse to go out to dinner and, and enjoy a night in the in the city before they leave typically the next day. Or you could stick around the whole next week and make a New England beer vacation since a lot of people might have off for the fourth of July. So just throwing that out there. But getting back to uh, the the, um, the knockout party, you may failed to mention the best part of it is that uh, uh, Matt Bowling is the MC of that event. And uh, ah. for people who don't know Matt, and like haven't gotten to see him on stage, like he is a uh, the, he is the the most entertaining personality on the AHA staff by far. <laughs> I'm going to be sure to make sure I, I want everybody on the AHA staff to listen to this so that they know <laughs> they know that <laughs> we, we, we all know it, Matt. That's why we volunteered you for that role. <laughs> well, I just know that last year the scariest part about the knockout party was I think you guys had representative kegs from each of the clubs pouring at uh, club night, and then all the leftover entry beers from the the competition. And I don't think I've ever seen a more efficient plague of locust sweep through the beer <laughs> than I did at that party. You would think after three days of having beer available to you at all times, people would kind of be you know nice and chalant about it. No, no, it was it was terrifying. We went through a firkin of of barley wine in almost no time. So kind of interesting to see. It was definitely an interesting dynamic because we we had uh, we actually had really good food that uh, had been um, uh, I guess, procured through our our, uh, our uh, Brewers Association chef uh, Chef Adam Dooley, uh, and the beer ran out faster than the food, and we actually had more beer than the previous year, and uh, and the previous year we had didn't run out of beer, but we ran out of food. Figuring out that dynamic is a is a challenge, but uh, th- this year we've got 
we will make sure that the uh, the beer lasts. Well, good to know. It is a pretty cool party for people to go to and experience that leftover competition beer, too, because, you know, a lot of people come to the conference every year to judge the final round of the competition and are very involved with the BJCP. Uh, I just recently became a BJCP judge, so all these years that I've been working on the conference, I never had a chance to appreciate these the, the, the work and uh, all of the the hard work that goes into organizing this competition. So, um, you know, that's a uh, that's a testament to our our beer services team and our competition organizers and all the volunteers that come out every year to help judge it. But not everybody gets a chance to do that. So, coming to the knockout party, you get a chance to kind of see the scale of this huge beer competition that is run every year. And you get to see exactly how many beers, well, not exactly because a lot have been judged, but you get to kind of get a glimpse into how big this, how big of a deal it is if you win a gold medal or a, or a, or a silver or a bronze. And it's really cool to go through and, and kind of do your own little judging of all these leftover competition beers because, you know, they all got through the first round. They're, they're in the second round of the competition. So you, all, you know that they're all quality home groups. So that is really something that I, um, you know, I, I don't think – club night gets all of the, the wow and, and the shimmer, but, um, you know, the knockout party I really think is, is something unique that you're not going to find anywhere else. And, you know, if, if you're a judge – then that's definitely something that uh, would be of interest. So um, that also more information on the website about Knockout Party on homebrewcon.org. And, of course, it's always great to share a beer with people who are goofy and giddy with uh, the medals that they're wearing around their chest. Absolutely. To win a medal at that level, knowing that we, this year we have over 9,000 entries in the competition, to, to even get to the final round and then to win a medal at the final round, man, like I, I think I'm a pretty good brewer, but I know I'm not that good. So the the, the people who are winning medals, like they really know what they're doing. So uh, yeah, take take pride if you if you get one of those things. So that's HomebrewCon uh, this year in Providence, Rhode Island. Just want to prime the pump for people for uh, next year. We know that the uh, we know that the journal policy of the IHA is to try and move the conference around the country in in sort of an organized fashion, right? You know, one time on the East Coast, one time in the middle, one time on the West Coast somewhere. Uh, any hints as to where we're going to be next year in 2020? Yeah, that pattern's going to hold up. <laughs> uh, that's about what I expected to hear. Very calculated well, answer. It, it, yeah. What, what you're saying basically is it won't be in Providence again. It, 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 won't, it won't be on the East Coast, and it won't be on the West Coast. There you go. Now, are there any places, you know, because we always get people asking, you know, hey, why haven't you gone here? Why haven't you gone here? Are there any places that you want to take the conference to that you haven't taken it to yet? Yes, and we're taking it to, to one of those places next year. Well, that's good. And then um, for people who want to get uh, want to try and get the conference into their neck of the woods, what do they need to do? Uh, you know, they, they, they can certainly reach out to, to me. That's, that's one way that I, I get places on my radar. Um, you know, there's there's so much that goes into determining the the location. Um, you know, a, a, a big factor is the, the legal considerations. Um, there's a number of states where we just can't do homebrewcon because their laws don't allow for it. Um, you know, we're talking about serving over a thousand kegs of unlicensed, untaxed alcohol. Uh, that can be a challenge get people to, to uh, work out the. <laughs> <laughs> the details on uh, on um, uh, legal wise, 
Um, and then beyond that, we, we, we try and move the, move the conference around to new locations. Um, you know, so haven't been in, in New England uh, since 1991. Uh, next year we're going to a brand-new location we've never been to. Um, and so that, that's certainly something we, we look at. And then, uh, um, you know, the accessibility for our members. Uh, we want it to be, um, one, you know, a place where, where we have a number of, of homebrewers and AHA members, and, and two, a location that's, that's uh, not overly expensive. So, you know, we were talking about Boston earlier. It's like, well, you know, I, I, I just can't bring myself to, to be in a place where we're going to be requiring people to, to spend 300 bucks a night on a hotel room. So that's, that's mm-hmm. a pretty major consideration too. Yeah. And, and that also kind of hits things like New York, right? That's always been one that people say, Oh, we should have something around New York. It's like, Oh, it's kind of hard. Yeah. So, all right. Yeah, but, I mean, but otherwise, New York city would be awesome, but not realistic. So I think it's safe to say that if you have ideas or if you want to find out whether or not you can bring home Rukon into your neck of the woods, they, they should reach out to you, Gary at uh, Gary at brewers association.org. And then we can, you know, work our way towards magical things happening and the next thing you know you have essentially the world's largest homebrew party in your backyard guys anything else that you want to make sure people know about homebrew con oh i don't um, think so i think we covered the, it pretty well oh go ahead Matt. the uh, early bird pricing for registration on homebrew con ends oh. may 2nd so uh if you're looking to join us in providence be sure to book your ticket before the prices go up um uh, on on may 2nd so um you can save a little bit of money by go ahead and, and registering today. And there you go. You can do that by going to homebrewcon.org and come join us in Providence, Rhode Island, June 27th through the 29th for the formal activities. But of course, a lot of people get there early, like, hey, you know, for June 26th for our party that we're going to be giving at Isle Brewers Guild. So come on down, homebrewcon.org. Well, you know, I've never been to Providence, and the way these conferences generally go, I'm not sure how much of it I'll see. But I am really looking forward to Homebrew Con again this year. I am. Providence has great food, too. You know, it has the Johnson Wales uh, Culinary School. So it's packed with interesting restaurants as well. So definitely, if, even, if you're not, even if you're not thinking about, you know, beer, which, <laughs> of course, you're thinking about beer. But even if you're not thinking about beer, there's also all the culinary aspects of Providence to, to go explore. So come on over to Providence. Come hang out with us. And don't forget... We've got our party going on the day before HomebrewCon, so get your butts there. And as always, we'll be recording a live podcast on Friday afternoon from the Country Malt Group Brewcraft USA booth. So come on by, see us, ask us embarrassing questions. All right, it's time to get this show done with. Let's go. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll have the quick tip, something other, no Q&A this week, and uh, then we'll get out of here and get things on the way. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Thanks for sticking with us. We're going to wrap things up here and get out of here so you can go have a beer. 
We're going to start with uh, a quick tip, and my quick tip is something that I was just talking about in terms of my hop creep test, and that is CO2 purging. I have gotten into the habit these days of every time I open a fermenter for any reason whatsoever, I shoot some CO2 into there. There are a lot of steps you can take to avoid oxidizing your beer. Some of them are more involved than others, and I figure shooting in a little CO2 is one of the easy things I can do. Uh, because I keg, I have a CO2 tank around, makes it easy to do. If you don't keg, you can go get one of those little CO2 injectors uh, that use the cartridges and just shoot some in. But it's an easy way to avoid oxygen contact with your beer. It's inexpensive. Uh, who knows how much it helps, but it's not going to hurt. Indeed. And, well, I think, as we've always said, you know, avoiding oxidation is a great idea. Uh, we're both advocates, or at least I'm a big advocate of the full keg purge. Uh, I, th I think it helps keep your beer lively, fresher, longer. So go do that. And But at the same time, don't get too crazy. Yeah, then, you know, I I did the I did the keg purge too when I when I uh, kegged it, but still, you know, every time you open that fermenter, shoot some CO two in there. Indeed, all right, and of course, we can't leave you without talking about something other than beer. And I've gotten a lot of great feedback recently on the something other than beer segments, so thank you. I'm glad you guys like this. Uh, I've got two real quick things. Uh, one of them is a YouTube channel uh, out there called How to Drink, and it's hosted by a guy named Greg who likes to say that he's you know never been a bartender, never worked in a bar in a professional capacity or anything else. He's a video editor, and he's making these really great, interesting videos about making different cocktails. And you know, the, a lot of them have themes. Like right now, he's doing a, an ongoing theme dealing with Game of Thrones. You know, while the new season's running every Tuesday, he's going to do. A, a different Game of Thrones themed cocktail, you know, just interesting stuff, including a lot of basics, but also a lot of creations that he's doing to kind of be inspired by things around the world. And what I really think is sort of hilarious about the show is the editing is very goofy in a way to make him seem like a, a complete goofball and slight, slightly idiotic. But the other fun part is you can tell that they shoot several episodes in a day back to back to back because the episodes will go on every Friday and for a couple of Fridays, he seems relatively, you know, sane. And then by the time you're getting down to it, it's like, going, Oh, he's kind of sloppy. This was towards the end of the day. And so just really funny. He's got a great sense of humor and the cocktails themselves also look really interesting. So that's how to drink on YouTube. Uh, very easy to find and very enjoyable series. And then also I, uh, I talked a little bit before earlier this year about a book called trail of lightning by Rebecca Roanhorse, which is a urban fantasy set in the Navajo lands post-apocalypse. Well, book two in that series is actually going to be out by the time that this episode drops. It is called Storm of Locust. So book two, go read it. Book one was great, and it was a fun, fun fast read. So there you go. Go forth. <laughs> go forth indeed. And I guess it's time for us to go forth also, huh? Yep. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a bunch of different beer forums and uh, a lot of Facebook stuff. You can find Drew on the Homebrewing subreddit as well as the Slack Homebrew channel. 
If you want to ask us questions or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can always email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And if you want to get a hold of each one of us, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, you can always leave us a voicemail or text at 626-765-1-ALE. Please include your name. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Brew.